Our scripture lesson today comes from Paul's letter to the early church in Galatia. Let's share in God's good word together. For freedom Christ has set us free. Stand firm, therefore, and do not submit again to a yoke of slavery. For you were called to freedom, brothers and sisters. Only do not use your freedom as an opportunity for self-indulgence, but through love become slaves to one another. For the whole law is summed up in a single commandment. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. If, however, you bite and devour one another, take care that you are not consumed by one another. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Amen. You might be surprised this 4th of July that we don't have an anger problem in American politics. We have a contempt problem. If you listen to how people talk to each other in political life today, you notice it is with pure contempt. These words are from Arthur C. Brooks in his book, Love Your Enemies, How Decent People Can Save America from the Culture of Contempt. Now, contempt is that dismissive attitude we hold against those who don't share our values. We say that with me. Contempt is that dismissive attitude we hold against those who don't share our views. And friends, contempt is dangerous. A large body of social science suggests that contempt impairs our cognitive abilities, damages our self-esteem, and makes us unhappy. Contempt is the dismissive attitude that those with whom one disagrees don't deserve to be taken seriously because they are liars or idiots or both. This is a huge danger for any society. Friends, contempt is a particular danger for the United States and the United Methodist Church right now. Because in many ways, neither are united. Some have even called them untied. See, when we are no longer united, when we no longer speak to one another or listen to one another, devastation and suffering are close at hand. A January 2017 Reuters poll found that one in six Americans had stopped talking to a family member or close friend because of the 2016 election. I don't suppose it's gotten any better since then. Arthur Brooks says it like this. Anyone who can't tell the difference between an ordinary Bernie Sanders supporter and a Stalinist revolutionary, or between Donald Trump's average voter and a Nazi, is either willfully ignorant or needs to get out of the house more. Well, now that I've alienated everyone, I hope you'll hang in. He's making a point. It's a very important point, friends. Now, we are to love one another. We're to listen to one another. We are to try to understand one another and not paint others unfairly. Certainly not demonize them, because only pain and suffering comes after that. But there are glimmers of hope. There are these moments in our culture that we can look to and point to. And Arthur Brooks uh, tells one story in his book at the beginning um, that touched me, and I, I hope it'll be meaningful to you. Brooks writes, On September 16th, 2017, Hawk Newsom and a group of protesters from Black Lives Matter arrived on the National Mall in Washington, D.C. to confront a group of Trump supporters gathered for what they called the mother of all rallies. The two sides traded insults, and the situation became more combustible by the second. Onlookers immediately pulled out their phones and started taking video. But then, just as the insults seemed ready to give way to blows, something wholly unexpected happened. Tommy Hodges, the organizer of the pro-Trump rally, invited Hawk Newsom onto the stage. We're going to give you two minutes of our platform to put your message out, he said. Hawk was ready to fight, not give a speech. 
but he accepted. A committed Christian, Hawk said a prayer, took a deep breath, and addressed the hostile crowd with passion and total sincerity. He said, I am an American. And the beauty of America is that when you see something broken in your country, you can mobilize to fix it. To his utter surprise, the crowd burst into applause. He continued, I said that I am an American. Secondly, I am a Christian. We don't want handouts. We don't want anything that's yours. We want our God-given right to freedom, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. The crowd erupted in cheers. His two minutes up, he concluded his remarks by saying, Listen, I want to leave you with this, and I'm gone. If we really want to make America great, we do it together. And the crowd roared and started cheering, USA, USA, USA. If we really want to make America great, we do it together. The Trumpers cheered and the better angels of our nature flapped about the mall for a little while. That phrase, the better angels of our nature, they might sound familiar. Maybe you've heard it before. The phrase comes from a speech from the 16th president of the United States, Abraham Lincoln. In his first inaugural address, President Lincoln wrote, We are not enemies, but friends. We must not be enemies. Though passion may have strained, it must not break our bonds of affection. The mystic cords of memory stretching from every battlefield and patriot grave to every living heart and hearthstone all over this broad land will yet swell the chorus of the Union when again touched, as surely they will be, by the better angels of our nature. Lincoln is correct, of course. Not just at that time, but now as well. Lincoln knew, Jesus knew, and I want you to know that unity is power. Unity is what God wants for us. And of course, the opposite is also true. Division is disaster. It just is. Contempt leads to violence, and violence leads to death, and death leads to orphans in the street. And I've seen it with my own eyes. It doesn't matter where the conflict is or where the divide happens. Pain follows. A number of years ago, many of you know that I went to go serve and help the Syrian refugees. Uh, this little girl met me outside my hotel room um, in Turkey, in Selçuk, Turkey. And it says, please, me and my family, we need help. There's a wife and three girls. We're from Syria. And we're here because of war. We have no place to be safe. Thank you. May God help you. Help us. And all I had was a zone bar in my backpack, but I gave it to her. That civil war, the, the breakdown of their government, the breakdown of their people, it's tragic. We went to other uh, refugee camps out in the wilderness, outside of town, and we found little children. Some had parents, some did not. They were simply being raised by other adults or relatives that could find them. And oftentimes it was really children watching children in these tents. Suffering and misery happen when we divide and hurt one another. I saw a similar thing in Nigeria when I was there in Africa. Orphans in the streets. This is a little boy named Miracle. And he was a miracle because he was saved by God and brought to this Christian orphanage where he would be um, safe and taken care of. And whether it's Africa, whether it's Syria, 
or whether it's in um, Guatemala. People who live in divisive areas with governments that fight and struggle, they have a hard life. These folks get to work by hopping in a trash truck. They have to actually get in with the garbage in order to simply go to work and take care of their family. Division is disaster. And it can come to any place at any time if we forget that unity is power. And it's always been this way from Genesis 11 to the Tower of Babel where the people of God were scattered all over the world. In Genesis 11 and in Acts 2, they were brought back. God gathers His people and He unified people from every nation under heaven. Our God gathers, unites, and brings understanding. In the book of Acts chapter 2 where our church takes its name, it says this, When the day of Pentecost had come, they were all together in one place. Now, there were devout Jews from every nation under heaven living in Jerusalem. And at this sound, the crowd gathered and was bewildered because each one heard them speaking in the native language of each. They heard each other. They listened to each other. They understood each other because Jesus and the spirit of Jesus is the common theme, the common language. And how is it that we hear each of us in our own language? You see, God is always bringing together, gathering and uniting And Satan's goal is to destroy our unity. Satan's goal is to come and to kill and to destroy, to destroy our unity between you and your husband or you and your wife or you and your children or you and your parents or you and the people you work with or you in your church or you in your county or you in your state or you in your country. Levi Lesko says it like this. He says, unity releases power and the devil will always try to divide so he can conquer divide, and conquer. You know that. I want you to remember that. God is uniting and bringing together and is the forces of evil and darkness and wickedness that divide. In the Hebrew Scriptures, it says this, it is good when we live together in unity. Psalm 133.1, how very good, very good and pleasant it is when kindred live together in, say it with me, Unity. That's where we want to be. That's where we want to live. And Jesus' prayer for his followers is that we are one, that we have joy, and that we are victorious over the evil one. We're not going to be divided. Even if it's hard, even if it's difficult, even if we don't agree on things, it doesn't have to divide us. We can stay as one because that's what Jesus prays for. That's what Jesus wants. It's very clear in the the Gospel of John. Holy Father, Jesus says, protect them in your name that you have given me so that they may be one. As we are one. But now I'm coming to you and I speak these things in the world so that they may have my joy made complete in themselves. Now notice that this oneness is where the joy comes from. And then he says in his prayer to God, I'm not asking you to take them out of the world. No, we're to be one right in the hardship of the world. But I ask you to protect them from the evil one. You see, this oneness and this joy and this protection from the evil one all go together. Because if we're not one and we're divided, then there's no joy. And evil has won. You know, every time we bring somebody into membership here, um, we ask a question. Uh, Will you resist evil, injustice, and oppression? And what are forms they present themselves? And friends, if we are fighting each other, 
We are not fighting against evil and justice and oppression in whatever forms they present themselves. We're fighting against each other. And we can't ever get to the work that we're called to do. The world is not changed by inner squabbles among people. Anywhere, in any organization, and certainly not in God's church with God's children. John Wesley, the founder of our our faith in Methodism, um, back in the 1700s, wrote it like this. He says, though we can't think alike, may we not all love alike, may we not be of one heart, though we are not of one opinion, without all doubt, we may, of course. Though we can't think alike, no, of course we're not going to think alike. Nobody thinks exactly like everybody else, but we can love alike. We can be of one heart. That's what Jesus is praying for. That's what God wants. That's what happens in the book of Acts chapter 2 in the day of Pentecost. And that's what it is to be a Methodist, to be united in one heart, even if, we don't, even if we don't agree on some stuff. But there is a lure to division. There's always been what Paul calls a party spirit. And the lure of division is pride and power. It is the illusion and the lie that you can be better than another one of God's children, that somehow God might like you more than God likes somebody else. And if you're a parent, you understand this. You love your kids, and the the thing that drives you nuts is when your kids are mean and hard or hurt one another. Andy Stanley says it like this, that he talks about the power of division. He says, think about it. I will give you a donation or a vote to protect me from those evil people, those racist Republicans, or those social Democrats, socialist Democrats. Have you talked to every single Republican? No, of course not. And every single Democrat? No, of course not. And when you fall into this false narrative, you're hurting people. I have really good friends that are Republicans, and they're not racist. And I have really good friends that are Democrats, and they're not socialists. And I bet you know people too. You have friends and family and people you love desperately that don't fall into easy-made categories um, depending on which channel you're watching on TV or on the internet or on social media. And here's, here's the thing that's been really hard over the last um, year or so. When someone wants me to take a stand or wants you to take a stand, What they're really saying is they want you to take their stand. And if we're not willing to take their stand, they don't want us to take a stand at all. Friends, we have really great families that are connected to our church that are in law enforcement. We love them. We pray for them. We care for them. And they're important to me. And they're important to you. We have people of color in our church. And I love them. We're praying for them. And they're important to me. And they're important to you. We don't have these, oh, well, this is right or this is right. Friends, we are all one in the family of God. And we have to figure it out together, even if we don't see it exactly the same. So here's the thing. The enemy is not a party. It's not a Democrat or Republican. The enemy's not that. The enemy is not this side or that side of any argument. The enemy is division itself. It's division that wrecks organizations. It is division that wrecks homes. Think about it in your own life. You know this to be true. It is division that causes harm in the church where we had one church for 1,054 years 
and then it divides. It divides again, divides again, divides again, to where some scholars think we have practically 50,000 different uh, stripes of denominations because of division. And of course, an unbelieving world doesn't want to have anything to do with it. I don't blame them. But here's the thing about unity. You can't legislate it. You can't legislate unity or responsibility or morality any more than you can make someone love you. You can hope someone loves you. You can hope somebody's moral. You can hope somebody does the right thing, but you can't make them do it. We don't have other control. And to be super transparent, there's not a lot of people that even have self-control, much less other control. John Adams, our second president of the United States, wrote something really important, and I hope we'll remember it this 4th of July. He says, our Constitution was made only for a moral and religious people. That's how it works. It is wholly inadequate to the government of any other. Now, the Constitution doesn't make us moral, and it can't make us moral, but the Constitution won't work if we don't do the right thing, the things that we ought to do. And then he goes on. He says, this country will be the most miserable habitation in the world because we have no government armed with the power capable of contending with human passions, unbridled by morality and religion. No, we have to have a moral center. We have to have a common conscience. We say, well, this is the right thing to do. This is what's best for the people. And then you do it because it's best for the people. Not necessarily just best for you or best for your small group. No, best for everyone. As best as we can do. And friends, that's found in the middle. You can raise a lot of money on the right. You can raise a lot of money on the left. But you don't find answers there. You don't find Jesus there. Because Jesus loves everyone. Everyone. Left and right. Red and blue. And he loves you. Never forget that. And so here's the good news and the hard news. And that is, the law came to give you life, but the law itself can't do it. Only Jesus can give you life. And so the problem with the law is, is that it reflects the minimum requirement. It's the lowest common denominator. It's really the lowest way to live. Think about traffic laws, right? It it doesn't tell you how to be a good driver. Andy Stanley says it like this. It doesn't make you a courteous driver. You simply, there are certain things you can't do um, without getting a ticket, right? You want to know how low you can go and still get home and not go to jail. That's not love. It's not virtue. That's not what God's about. That's not what our country's about. So the answer is a new law. And of course, it's always a Sunday school answer. The answer around here is Jesus. Following Jesus fulfills the law. And that's what Jesus said. He said, I didn't, I didn't come to, you know, tear the law down. He goes, I've I've come to fulfill it. If you follow me, you are following all the law. The the five books of the Torah, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. You see, Moses brought the old law and Jesus is the new law, right? So they used to have hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of laws. And Jesus says, no, no, no. I've, I've got a new way of living. All you really have to know is the law of Christ, the law of love. And so he says in Matthew, in the Gospel of Matthew, you've heard it said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. Here's the new law. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. That's who we are. We're Jesus followers. We're Jesus people. So that you may be children of your Father in heaven. That's who we are. Children of God. Children of the light. For God makes His Son to to rise on the evil and on the good. Isn't that true? This morning, didn't the sun come up? And it didn't, you know... 
discriminate between some people and other people? No, the sun comes up and sends rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. For if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Do not even the tax collectors do the same? Sure, they do. And if you greet only your brothers and sisters, what more are you doing than others? Do not even Gentiles, people outside the faith, do the same. He says, be perfect in love. Be perfect in your love of others as your heavenly Father is perfect. God loves everyone, sends the rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. And so what Jesus is doing, has done on the cross and done in the resurrection, is that you and I now are free from the old law if we live into the new law of the love of Jesus. And this is freedom, friends. This is freedom. You don't have to know all of Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. You just don't have to. Yeah, you're free. But not just for your sake. Will you say this with me? You're free, but not just for your sake. And you're saved. But not saved just for your sake sake. You're saved for something. You're saved for good. You're saved to serve the world. Paul says to the early church, use your freedom to serve one another in love. If you want a better country, learn to serve. Use your freedom to serve others, to bless others, to care for others, to make your place a better place, to leave the world better than you found it, as my mama would say. So in Galatians, Paul says it like this, You were called to freedom. Yes, brothers and sisters, only do not use your freedom as an opportunity for self-indulgence. No, but through love become slaves to one another. Serve one another. It is absolutely clear that God has called you to a free life. Just make sure that you don't use this freedom as an excuse to do whatever you want to do and destroy your freedom. Rather, use your freedom to serve one another in love. That's how freedom grows. As you serve others, your freedom grows and grows. And Jesus says the entire, the entire law is fulfilled in keeping one command. Love your neighbor as yourself. That's what the early church learned from Paul. For the whole law summed up in a single commandment, he says to the church in Galatia, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. And Jesus, of course, modeled this. He came and he loved everyone. He even said from the cross, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. When Jesus came into the world, it was a very dark and hard time. The Roman government basically had their boot on the neck of everyone around them, including God's people in Israel. So Jesus was caught between Pilate and the Roman Empire on one side, and Herod and the Jewish leaders on the other. And the zealots wanted Jesus to start something new by force, to to kick people out and to bring angels from heaven and to zap people. And Jesus, in the middle of all of that, said, no. No. He opened his arms wide and changed the world. He changed the world by loving everyone, not picking sides. And do you know why this 4th of July, 2021, do you know why we call it that? Because you and I, we live 2,021 years after Jesus the man in the middle who chose to love everyone, even if it cost him his life. And we are to love and to forgive others as Jesus loved and forgave us. We say that with me? We are to love and forgive others as Jesus loved and forgave us. You might ask a question a lot of people ask. Well, what if we don't? You know that's sort of an immature question, but... 
people ask it. You know, it's sort of the little rebellious question. Well, you know, I know that's what we're supposed to do, but, you know, what if we don't? If we don't love one another, what's our alternative? What happens then? Well, Paul tells us. He says it to the church in Galatia, and he says it to us today. If, however, you bite and devour one another, take care that you are not consumed by one another. That's what happens if you don't choose to love. If you don't choose the law of Christ, the law of love, this is what happens. Ultimately, you're going to bite and devour one another. And you might ask yourself, what, what kind of humans do that? What kind of humans would bite another human? Well, if you're a parent of a two-year-old, you know the answer already. It's little ones, tiny ones, immature ones. Those are the ones who bite. When Chantel and I were first married, she often would come home from her work um, as a preschool teacher. And one of the hardest things of her job was this kid bit that kid. It's a hard thing to watch. It's a hard thing to explain to the parents. It's a hard thing to deal with. It's painful to watch little ones bite one another. So Paul gives the church a warning about this. He, he warns the church, like, don't do that. And he, he says, the works of the flesh, these things that are at odds with God, they look like this. He says they're obvious. Fornication, impurity, licentiousness, idolatry, sorcery, enmities, strife, jealousy, anger, quarrels, dissensions, factions, envy, drunkenness, carousing, and things like these. There's 15 things here that Paul lists. And notice the ones in yellow, there's eight of them, more than half of them all say the same thing. It's all about division. You think about enmity or strife or jealousy or anger, quarrels, dissensions, factions, envy. That's all division. And what blows my mind is that supposed well-meaning Christians will pick any of the other seven and get sold out for the one and ignore the eight. That makes no sense. When Jesus says he's about unity, he means it. When Paul says, don't fall for division, he means it. Paul goes on, he says, I'm warning you, as I warned you before, those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. Because in God's kingdom, everybody gets along. Really. They listen to one another. They love one another. They serve one another. We're to be people living in the kingdom of love and joy. And this flesh that Paul talks about, it's not about your sexuality. It's about living at odds with God. Now, your sexuality may be a part of your life that you need to get right with God. But as Paul's using it, it's about all those things that are at odds with God. And in that list of 15 vices, eight of them are about division. More than half of them. And so Paul says, well, let's get this straight then. Let's not become conceited, competing against each other, Envying one another. No, that's not who we are. He goes, but it will get tiresome. And so, so he really tries to encourage the church. He says, don't grow weary. Don't give up. And if you're like me, sometimes you get weary. I mean, you just get tired of the nonsense. You get tired of these folks, you know, arguing and complaining about those folks. And those folks arguing and complaining about those folks. I mean, oh my gosh, it can make you weary. But Paul says, don't give up. This unity business, this love of Christ, it's important. So he closes in in Galatians 6. He says, so let us not grow weary in doing what is right. For we will reap at harvest time if we don't give up. Don't give up, friends. Our country needs us 
needs you. Your family needs you. It needs you unified. It needs you loving and serving and caring. Don't grow weary. Don't give up. So then, whenever we have an opportunity, let us work for the good of all, and especially for those of the family of faith. Because, friends, here is the truth of our situation in America. Our country, any country, is only as virtuous as its people. And we, the people, can do better to form a more perfect union. We can. We need to. This 4th of July. So how do we do that? Our action steps. Arthur Brooks has a really good one. He says, disagree better, not less. It doesn't do us any good to, you know, shirk away and and think those other folks are idiots. No. Engage, but do it better. Do it lovingly. Do it kind. Do it with an open mind. Learn something. That's a good thing, not a bad thing. Secondly, we might consider this. Let's just do what's right, not what's popular. When uh, the former church that we served, there was a little poster outside my office, and it said this. What's right is not always popular, and what's popular is not always right. We have to choose to do what's right. It's the right thing to do. And then, let God in on the action. Seek silence and solitude to disconnect from the noise and reconnect to the voice of our God who loves you. Sometimes we just need a number of hours in silence. You'd be amazed at what it'll do for your soul and your outlook. And then finally, choose unity. Really, choose unity. Take a step towards someone that you don't fully agree with. And friends, someone's got to go first. Someone has to go first. This year, let it be us. Let us be the first to love, the first to serve, the first to bless. In Jesus' name. Amen? Amen. Let's pray together the prayer that Jesus taught us, saying, Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into the temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen.